0: It is with great excitement that we come to the Lord's house on a first day of the week such as this one and to give consideration to, among other things, some of the songs we just sang, like the Lamb of God, You Are My All in All, songs such as that debt that the Lord paid for you and me. Isn't it exciting to be able to voice words in songs such as that and to appreciate the meaning behind it? Not only that, the prayer in which Brother Wendell led us, taking us to the very throne of God. Isn't it true that those prayers encircle the very throne of God, Revelation 5 will tell us? It is good to be back today. My family and I, we're so thankful for your kind thoughts and prayers regarding that gospel meeting at Flint's Creek. Certainly a great deal of good, it would seem, was done by that. Again, we greatly appreciate your kind thoughts. And not only that, many of you came in person to support that meeting on multiple occasions, and we're just very, very happy and very, very glad to make note of the encouragement that you shared with us and with those folks there. I will say that there's a remaining gospel meeting to be held at Union Hill late next month, so we'll have more to say about that as that time gets close. But for today, might all of us please keep in mind that third Sunday singing held today at 2 o'clock this afternoon here at our building. Uh, Again, that meeting or that uh, particular singing is such that, as you probably would imagine, for a number of months last year, it was not held. Uh, I think most all congregations, uh, I think March onward last year, did not hold that meeting. But beginning uh, a little earlier this year, congregations began to start holding it again. And so every year we typically host it in August, and that time has come. So please keep in mind, this afternoon at 2 o'clock, and that will serve as our evening service, the elders have determined, so we'll not be back here at 5.30 this afternoon. But come out and lift our voices together at 2 o'clock in the third Sunday, uh, Putnam County Singing. You'll notice behind me on the wall, the title of the lesson today, taken from a number of verses, including Revelation 21, verse 23. The Glory of God... It is true that much could be said about that theme and that topic, and we will simply begin with these brief observations and launch into some considerations from the Holy Word of God in just a moment. Could I at least offer this thought, one of the greatest failings of the human family is to fail to appreciate the glory of God. We make every effort in many ways to bring God down to our level, And I suppose, in our effort to try to make his circumstances and his nature something we can envision, we often lower him beneath far what he is, and that's a great problem in many ways. It really brings him to our level to the extent that we often think that maybe his behavior is just slightly greater than ours, and that's not so. His behavior even in all considerations, is far above ours. At the very least, today, why don't we revisit a few biblical passages, which will try to set in our hearts a reminder of how great He is, as we particularly look at His glory. I might suggest thoughts about this lesson today surely ought to motivate any ungodly person, because in so doing, it's a reminder of your condition in mind before Him, But even those that are Christians, this lesson ought to be a reminder of how always we need to be humble, recognizing the great God that we serve. Several snapshots in the Bible will now be presented to us. And the first one is going to start in the Old Testament. In fact, we're going to look at three particular events first. And I'm going to try to develop it in the following way. I call them snapshots because I think you're going to find with me, very interestingly, God did not just come out and say, you be aware of my glory. Don't you forget my glory. He pictorially made the point like this. In Exodus chapter 3, if you'd be at least turning in your Bible to that location, we will draw our first consideration under the heading of the call of Moses. Moses, of course, had actually grown up in the palace of Egypt. We all remember easily the fact that, of course, his mother, in order to save his life, had put him in the bulrushes of the Nile River, and Pharaoh's daughter found him. She, of course, was drawn to the little baby, and she ultimately brought him into the palace, and interestingly enough, she secured the services of Moses' own mother to take care of him. But Moses was reared with all the pomp and circumstance and the riches of the palace. But yet the time came in Exodus chapter two, when he was grown up, that he became furious that the Egyptians were persecuting the the Israelites in the way that they were. And in fact, Moses took the life of an Egyptian. He killed him. Moses recognized that he then had to flee. Even though he had grown up in the way that he was, the Pharaoh would not look kindly upon him taking the life of an Egyptian. Moses fled. He fled all the way to Midian. And you remember there in Exodus chapters 2 and 3, as those details are brought before us, he married and he came to tend to the flock of his father-in-law. The text says he led that flock to the backside of the mountain. And there, something amazing took place. On one occasion, Moses saw a bush that burned with fire. But the bush wasn't consumed. There was a remarkable flame appearing out of this bush, and yet the bush was not burning up. At that point, Moses heard a voice coming out of that bush. Now, it wasn't the bush talking. It was God in the bush. It was God speaking through the elements of the bush. It was the God of heaven affirming the nature of the instances on this scene to Moses. As you'll see on that slide, what was about to happen was this Moses was going to be given some orders. I want you, Moses, to go to Egypt, the very place from which you fled for safety in your own life. You go back there. Do you think that would have been an easy message to hear? Don't you know that Moses had to be fearful? If I go back, God, will that not mean my life under the threat of the Pharaoh? Nonetheless, over the course of what was about to be told, God said, don't go back for you. You go back for me. You bring my people out of Egypt. That mass of people, numbering no doubt now into the millions, you bring them out of Egypt... Can you not imagine the difficulty of what may have appeared in Moses' mind? The circumstances surrounding the challenge of that task. And yet, notice one more thing before all of that gets underway. The glory of God. May I invite you to note as I read in Exodus chapter 3, the wording that appears in verse number 5. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. Now might we take careful note. The bush was burning, the bush was on fire, and yet God said, Take your shoes off, Moses. The ground on which you're standing is holy ground. Notice again the message, the clear message that was revealed to Moses. The challenge was not going to be great. Moses, you need to understand the strength is not coming from you. The fortitude and the necessity attached to this event and this effort is not going to rest upon you. Moses, I'm sure, would never forget that burning bush. The reminder of how God could overrule the matters of this physical world A bush that's on fire ought to be consumed, but this one wasn't. And the brightness of the flame was no doubt mighty and majestic. Just a brief glimmer of the glory of God. Moses, here's why you need to do what I'm telling you. You go back to Egypt, despite the fears you may have. You go there and you, in fact, will stand before the most powerful figure in the world at this point. Egypt ruled the world at the time, and the Pharaoh was the most powerful man on earth. And you stand before him and you tell him to let my people go. That was going to take courage. It was going to require bravery. It was going to require absolute commitment, and a burning bush was the mechanism by which God would bring before the mind of Moses the greatness of God. You'll notice on that particular slide... A couple of the last observations then will use that topic to point you and I in this direction. Did you notice what took place? Now notice, we're not to say that there was something special about that particular parcel of ground. That's not why Moses needed to take his shoes off. The reason it was holy is he was in the presence of God. That's what made it so special and what made it so remarkable and that's what made it holy. May I offer this? When you and I assemble for worship, as for instance we are at the moment, oh, it's true, we're in a building in Putnam County, Tennessee, and we're in this particular location in the United States of America, that's not what makes it special. As privileged and as honored as you and I may feel we are, and we are greatly blessed, what is so majestic is the fact we're in the presence of God. As we assemble for worship at times like this one, did Jesus not say on one occasion with respect to the Lord's Supper, I'll not take it again till I take it new with you. With you. The Lord is just going to be not only a passive watcher, He is very observant in light of what we're doing. And this worship, you see, is such that it should be a reminder we're in the presence of His glory as great and mighty as it is. Now, the burning bush was going to give to Moses that understanding, and no doubt an image he wouldn't soon forget. One verse that I did not read, but it's the one I'll use to transition to the next point in the slide. Did you note verse number 4? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. I think each of us, with a bush on fire like that, and no doubt in a very brilliant way, we would turn aside to see it too. And God wanted Moses to understand, this is not some arbitrary flame. And it's not just some bush that is otherwise burning in an unusual way. Moses was called to by the Lord. Today, how about you and I consider... The glory of God is a constant reminder of how great that He is. That only prepares us for what's next. Why don't we look at yet another scene wherein God's glory is so majestically presented. This time, let's visit Isaiah, the sixth chapter. As you be turning in that particular place in your Bible, what you will readily find with me is a scene, and we will read several verses calling into the appreciation of the glory of God. The call of the prophets is quite often a very interesting occurrence because as we encounter the prophetical books of the Old Testament, we find again the God of heaven would bring them into the ministry, into their work. And quite often the way in which it was done was in a very great reminder of God's glory. Listen to this one. Beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I the eye being Isaiah, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain He covered His face, with twain He covered His feet, and with twain He did fly. And one cried unto unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory." And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Let's pause there a moment. Isaiah was being called to the prophetical ministry. At that time, you'll notice he says, I saw a vision, and in that vision, verse 1, I saw the Lord upon His throne. The first thing Isaiah would never need to forget. You're not doing your work, Isaiah. You're doing the Lord's work. And you'll notice he saw this throne high and lifted up, far above men. But not only that, his train filled the temple. Now exactly how to envision that, I am not sure. But you and I notice that when a lady is getting married, she often has a train that is very impressive and lengthy and a reminder of the solemnity of that occasion in that day. It says the train filled the temple. So this place to which Isaiah was taken in this vision, he saw the temple. And in the temple, of course, he saw the high and lifted up throne of God. Now verse number 2, he saw seraphims. Isn't that interesting? And they had six wings. With two of the wings, they covered their face. With two of them, they covered their feet, and the other two allowed them to fly. The picture of such a seraphim quickly notes one of these seraphim had something to say. He said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of His glory. May I ask each of us to remember that Isaiah again was soon to launch into a career that was going to be filled in many ways with disappointment. Isaiah came to the ministry a number of years before God's people were hauled off into captivity. But Isaiah's message was, repent, repent, repent. If you don't, here's what's going to happen. And they didn't like to hear it. Quite often, the people, in fact, would turn their attention away from Isaiah and put him in very difficult situations. More than once in the book, He would comment about the people who were of a stubborn spirit and a stubborn heart. And yet, he needed to never forget the one driving him in this message was not merely his love for the people, as great as that was. It was God's message, God's love for them. And he was given an image of God's glory. Did you notice? The whole earth is full of His glory. That's what Isaiah saw. It is with that in mind, may I ask, What kind of an impression did this leave on Isaiah? Verse number 4 tells us that in light of what Isaiah saw, the whole building shook at the statement of what the seraphim said. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the building quaked at the truth of that that affirmation. But then verse 5, Isaiah reacted this way. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's immediate reaction in seeing this temple, hearing the seraphim, observing the absolute glory of God, his only reaction I am not worthy of this. I am a man of unclean lips. I'm not worthy to come in your presence. And he said, not only that, this people among whom I serve, they are also of unclean lips. I would suggest that one of the immediate reactions that any of us ought to have as we contemplate the glory of God is how woefully inadequate we are. I'm a sinner, and God, You're not. I am unworthy to be in Your presence. Based on my efforts, based on that which I am, I have no business in Your presence. That's how Isaiah felt. God, I'm a man of unclean lips. And did you notice the reason why he said that? At closing verse 5, For mine eyes have seen the King. He had witnessed some element of God's glory, and his immediate feeling is... I'm unworthy. Verse number 6 will continue that. How did then the seraphims react to his statement? Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. You'll note the God of heaven did not disagree with him. He didn't say, well, it's all right for you to have sin. No, not at all. He rather, in fact, the seraphim took a live coal from off the altar and touched the lips of Isaiah with it and said, your iniquity is now cleansed. Your sin is purged. May I suggest as you close that slide with me, this is a majestic reminder that one thing God's glory will inevitably do to us is remind us how needful it is to be holy. How important it is to be godly. May we never think in the course of a day that there is some excuse for living in sin. That there's some excuse for the status quo of ungodliness, for there isn't. God's glory demands better than that. Isaiah learned that lesson. And don't you know, he would never forget it. No matter how challenging the times would come and how great the opposition to his preaching would be, I'm sure he never forgot what he saw in this temple. That which motivated him was a holiness in himself and a holiness in those people. And so he had to preach to them and urge them and remind them. What about the glory of God in your life and mine? Doesn't it remind us how needful it is to be pure? And to be holy. We're told in Hebrews 12 14 that without holiness no man shall see the Lord. If you and I think we can live in sin and go to heaven, we're just deceiving ourselves. If we think by some means we can justify it, and yet somehow God will overlook it, we're only deceiving ourselves. God is of pure eyes and to behold iniquity, Habakkuk 113. He would say in Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5, that there His eyes are so pure to be above the matter of the sinfulness. This call of Moses and now the call of Isaiah. In both instances, the glory of God has been the central figure. A reminder to these individuals how great God's glory is. Could we pause at this point and say, if the world at large... If people walking upon this planet could just appreciate God's glory, there'd be no rebellion. Every jailhouse would be empty. Every crime would be long gone. Because, you see, a realization of God's greatness will bring us to our knees in recognizing how pure and holy we must be to even be in His presence. The human family, you see, hasn't understood that very much, has it? Beyond these two examples, what about another one? Another one of the prophets, this time Ezekiel. Would you be turning to Ezekiel chapter 1? We certainly will not be able to read all of this one, for it encompasses basically the entirety of chapter 1, and that's 28 verses. So I'll simply try to summarize parts of it, and then we will draw some appreciations as it relates to us from it. But one more time, Ezekiel, remember, his time, his chronology was different than that of Isaiah. God's people had been taken captive. They were already hauled away. The temple had been burned. Jerusalem had been ransacked. God's people were now in captivity. Don't you know their hearts in many ways had to be heavy? Can you not imagine some of what no doubt crossed their mind? How could God have let this happen? I thought Jerusalem was the place He loved. I thought we were His people. And He let this happen to us? Don't you know they were often despaired, dejected, and disappointed? And yet God rose up a prophet named Ezekiel. And he was a captive right along with them. And yet you preached to them. And the message He had to share was often hard. If I may summarize part of it, it went like this. You're in captivity because of your doings. You brought it on yourself. Don't blame God for it. You're the one that sinned. You're the one that wouldn't repent just like Isaiah told you to. You're the one that would not turn to Him in love and directness. You brought it on yourself. You have been your own worst enemy. Many times we don't like to hear that, do we? I want to blame somebody else for my problems. I want to somehow cast the blame on others, but Isaiah, rather Ezekiel, said, You did this! And yet in that light, he would need to preach to them. He didn't need to give up. And so how did God instill in Ezekiel the kind of fortitude, the kind of commitment that would be required? May I again say, as I noted earlier, how easy would it have been for, For God to simply tell Isaiah or Moses or Ezekiel, don't you ever forget my glory. But He didn't do it that way. He showed Moses a burning bush. He took Isaiah in a vision to the temple and let him see these marvelous seraphim and what they had to say. What did He do to Ezekiel? Chapter 1 is laid out much like I've invited you to note on this slide Ezekiel saw a vision. Let me at least read the first couple of verses. Beginning in verse 4, And I looked, the eyes of Ezekiel, and I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself. And a brightness was about it, and out of the midst thereof, as the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, and their And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and every one had four faces, and every one had four wings. Now that sounds odd, doesn't it? The likeness of a man, but with four faces? And it's going to get even more unusual in just a moment. Verse number 7, "...their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot." And they sparkle like the color of burnished brass. And they had hands of a man under their wings on their four sides. And they four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. They went every one straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side. And they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle." Thus were their faces, and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another, and two covered their bodies. Now that certainly isn't the conclusion, but let's pause there to say this. What we have just been described is something very unusual. And this is what Ezekiel saw. And at first sight we may wonder, what was God's message to him? What was the point in Ezekiel seeing this strange creature... Could I invite you to go ahead and note the result of it? And then we'll go back and fill in a few more details. But to settle our heart, look at verse 28. Why did God show Ezekiel something like this? Verse 28 gives us the answer. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. As odd as this may have been to us, the mission, the message, the sole thing that Ezekiel was to take out of it was a rehearsal of the glory of God. Now, on this next slide, I've at least invited you to appreciate a picture, if I could call it that, of part of of what we just read. Ezekiel saw something like that. Note the four faces at the top. An eagle, a man, a lion, and an ox. Note the wings and the arms of the man underneath the ox. And note the feet look like the feet of a cow. This is what Ezekiel saw and it was to be a reminder of the great glory of God as it overrules in every way the features of what people would think is the way things ought to be done. God's way is always right, and may I say, this image is ultimately going to have a bearing on the book of Revelation. There's a time in Revelation when John saw something, and it's going to take us back to this scene to help us appreciate the great message of the glory of God. Maybe at the very least I could say, this isn't all Ezekiel saw. Notice there were four of these creatures and those, the wings were joined together, and you'll notice they flew straight. They didn't turn to the left or the right. Ezekiel, my message is firm and unbending. Don't you change it left or right. You preach it as it is, as I've given it to you. Isn't God's Word still that way today? Paul understood there was no need to turn to the right or left. You and I today realize just as certainly as God's Word was delivered then to Ezekiel, in principle it comes to us the same way and God's glory mandates it. No wonder the book of Revelation will later say that those who try to change it by in fact adding things to it, the plagues of the book of Revelation will be added to you if you do that. But if you take something out of it, namely the Word of God, then your name will be taken out of the book of life. Either way you look at it, you're forfeiting salvation. Ezekiel was reminded in an image like that about the overwhelming nature of God's glory, and then God even topped that with this. Because in the second part of the chapter, Ezekiel saw something else. A pair of wheels with one of them inside the other one. And these wheels could zip about, and as Ezekiel saw them, it was again a reminder that as the wheels would go up or down, forward or back, it was under the direction of the God of heaven. And those wheels were such that they carried out the very mission and will of God absolutely. As you read the latter part of it, let me just draw your attention to a couple of the verses. Verse 18, As for their rings... They were so high that they were dreadful. And their rings were full of eyes round about. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went by them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Whithersoever the Spirit was to go, they went. Thither was their spirit. And the wheels were lifted up over against them, for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels." So Ezekiel saw these four living creatures and then these wheels. I might pause to say there have been some who have looked upon Ezekiel chapter 1 and said, here is an ancient record of people seeing a UFO. That's blasphemous. This was no UFO. This is what the God of heaven gave Ezekiel to see. And the message in it was about the glory of God. Because those wheels you see were those that followed God's commandments. The Spirit led them, and whatever they did is that which the Spirit had told them. As we go back to that previous slide, what are some lessons in that? Then for us, we've seen a bit about Isaiah. We've noted a bit about Moses. What about Ezekiel? The glory of God in the days of Ezekiel, among other things, highlights to us this truth. Ezekiel, you see, whether it be by way of the wheels, or whether it be by way of the creatures, the message was clearly God's message, and there was to be no tampering with it, but rather a great humility in simply faithfully doing it. Now that's needed in any age and in any time, isn't it? And Ezekiel was about to embark on a very challenging mission. You go to preach to a people who, in many cases, will not believe what you have to say. And they're not going to have much confidence in you. But yet that was not to deter him, nor was it to cause him to quit. And so, through 48 rather amazing chapters, he will preach the message of God to a people who in many ways had a heart that was so hard... As you and I close that slide, why don't we say in Psalm 19.1, the glory of God is a matter that's often presented to us because the heavens declare it. Every time we witness a beautiful starry night or events that happen in a celestial way, we should be reminded of the perfection of God and His holiness. And all of that brings us to close our lesson with one final observation. With Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Moses as the background. What about the church of the day today? Isn't it true that we too should be a keen responder to the glory of God? Of all people on earth, Christians ought to be the ones that appreciate it. Christians ought to be the ones that are mindful of it because they use it to motivate their faithfulness, to motivate their respect and honor for the church to motivate their dedication to the God of heaven. Is it any wonder then that the glory of God is mentioned several times in the New Testament and always in a very dramatic way? I might just offer you two. One of them from Matthew 25 is this, the Day of Judgment. I suppose there perhaps could be many who would ask, well, what's so special about the Day of Judgment? After all, we live here upon earth and we're going to die at some point if the Lord delays His coming. And then we'll appear before the God of heaven in judgment. And many will say, well, haven't I already basically been judged by that time? If I leave this life and end up in torment like the rich man, won't I know I'm destined for hell? Yes. If I leave this life and find myself in Abraham's bosom, again, like Lazarus, won't I know I'm destined for heaven? Yes. Yes. But might we never forget, there is something to be said about the verdict and the absolute greatness of what will occur on the Day of Judgment. If I'm lost, it will not be God's fault. It won't be anybody's fault but mine. We learned that earlier today as we reflected on the case of Moses. On that Day of Judgment, God will be vindicated. And His declaration will be absolutely right. If I'm lost, I deserved it. I earned it, if you please. But on the other hand, if I'm blessed to be granted entrance to heaven, I won't be able to say I earned it. In the same way these visions bring out the glory of God, it'll be a reminder it's only due to His favor to me and the nature of the Son who died for me. But the glory of God will be apparent. It'll be clearly appreciated that day. Jesus said that'd be true in Matthew 25, verses 31 and 32. And maybe as we now contemplate heaven itself, the lesson text, as Brother John read earlier today, took us to Revelation 21, verse 23. Did you notice what lighted heaven? That celestial city, it says there's no need for the sun or the moon because the glory of God did lighten it the brilliance of the God of heaven. Now, I know there's been a few times in the Bible we've seen images of that brilliance. You remember the day of Moses. Moses wanted to see the glory of God, and God said, you'll die if you do. His glory is apparently so great that no human can see it and live. God did say, I'll do this, I'll put you in a hole in the rock, and I'll pass by... And I'll move my hand slightly, and you can see my backside. Exodus 33, verses 17 and following. Can you imagine the brilliance? On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus appeared brighter than the sun, the text says in Matthew 17. It'll be no problem for that brilliance to lighten heaven. May I suggest, though, it places demands upon us now. If we want to be present to appreciate that, Here are some things we've learned today about God's glory. As stirring and as compelling as it is, we've learned through the matter of Moses, the matter of Isaiah, and the matter of Ezekiel, that that glory is truly great. So much so that it surely ought to motivate us to be holy and faithful because we'll miss out on that heaven if we aren't. But not only that, it reminds us of whatever the task is before us, to be true to God always, neither swerving left or right, just like the things that Ezekiel saw. And finally, in regard to the church, the brilliance that illuminates heaven is a brilliance that can lead your way and mine to where we need to be. Today, as you and I examine ourselves and consider ourselves, may we not let the human family cause us to lose sight of the glory of God. I know well that there's a temptation to bring God down to our level, but that's a disservice to Him. As you respect His glory, if you need to respond publicly to His invitation today, simply do what He says. If you as a wayward child of God would wish to return to your first love, repent of those sins, make confession of them, with warm and open arms He'll receive you back. If you have never become a Christian, why not today? Believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. And if we could be of some assistance to you in those ways, we'd be happy to do it as we stand together and sing this chosen song.